ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com You know those nights when you can't sleep and you're kind of just laying in bed and 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 I would kind of try to dream about what this moment would be like when I would meet my child. But you can't you can see the child's face. You couldn't see where you'd be. Would you be at the hospital? Would you be at your front door? Would you be at a government office, you know? I didn't know what it would look like. So so this night I was thinking, was this my moment? Was I becoming a parent? I'm Diana Sugg of the Baltimore Sun. This is episode three of The Wait, a podcast about what it means to be a mother and one woman's long journey to become one. When we last heard from her, reporter Yvonne Wenger confronted the medical reality that she had little chance of becoming pregnant. She and her husband Artie committed to becoming foster parents while hoping for the chance to adopt. We pick up her story when she first meets her foster son, a 15-month-old boy whose social workers told her was abandoned by his mother. Rushing home from work, Yvonne stops at the store for baby food and diapers, things that when she woke up that morning, she had no idea she'd be needing. When she gets home, the toddler is already there with her husband, Artie. He was on the sofa, and he was sitting next to our beagle, and he was pulling on his legs, Mm -hmm. and he was holding a stuffed monkey that my brother had gotten us. He had been crying, obviously, pretty heavily um, before he got to our house, Uh, but once he was there, he um, was just really big-eyed and looking around. Um, I felt like he must have been so scared and so uncertain and he just looked shocked like looking around and trying to take it all in that night it feels to Yvonne as if she's stepping into the role she has long yearned for she gives the little boy something to eat and a warm bath then she takes him into the old guest room that she and Artie have lovingly redecorated into a nursery. Animal sheets line the white crib. Friends and family's favorite children's books fill the shelves. And on the wall is a wooden Dr. Seuss plaque. Oh, the places you'll go. He was like thrashing around and his arms were flailing and I thought, Am I causing him more trauma because I'm trying to hold him? Like, I'm trying to calm him, and I'm holding him tight, but am I making it worse? I really didn't know what to do. Did you know a song to sing? So the only song I discovered that I knew, the only lullaby that I actually knew, was um, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. There were times that first night when I put him to bed, including as I was singing to him, that he would calm down. And, I mean, it felt really special to me to have the moments with him in the nursery because um, I had dreamed about having a child for so long. And here was this, this perfect little boy who had um, 
a little bit of red hair and it was easy for me to imagine that he was, you know, could be our son because I have red hair and, um, and they told you he had been abandoned by his mother. So, yeah. And he, and I took that as kind of a key word, um, to suggest that, that maybe this child could be available for adoption. So on that first night, I was, had so many thoughts, and I thought, have I just met my son? And you're excited. I was excited, even though this was, it sounds so, I, I felt even conflicted in the moment, recognizing that I was excited, but this was, conceivably the worst day of his parents' lives to have their son taken from them. And certainly this child was scared. So it feels weird to to admit to myself even that I was excited, but I was, and I thought about the potential um, of what this moment had signified because for so long I would wonder what the moment would feel like when I would become a parent because for for many people it's um, the moment that you envision in the hospital you know your family and friends are gathered in the waiting room and you're delivering a baby who you have been longing to set eyes on you know for nine months and so I would when I came to accept that uh, we wouldn't have that moment. I tried to picture what our moment would look like. So this night, I was thinking, was this my moment? Was I becoming a parent? And um, and I felt like it was a little bit like fate because this little boy, I swear to you, he looked like he could be my son. And of all the children in Baltimore City, to have one with red hair show up on my door just felt like. So we're in the nursery that night and I am singing to him and I'm wondering if I have become a mother. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Yvonne would learn more songs but she kept going back to that one. Up above the sky so bright, like a diamond. Once he was older, so would the little boy. Jingle, jingle, little dog. How I wonder what you are. Yvonne, tell us what happened the next day when the phone rang again. So the toddler was wrecking our house. (laughs) He was like a wrecking ball. We didn't have child safety locks on the kitchen cabinets. And so um, he had moved through the kitchen pulling out all of the plastic containers and the lids and um and I let I mean I let him do it I was I was letting him play and um and so at this point he had moved into the living room to wreck some more things (laughs) and I was sitting on the kitchen floor and I was trying to reorganize the cabinet and I saw the DSS number come up on my phone the top three exchange you know the and um anyways I saw the number come up and um and I picked up and it was the placement unit and they say would you be willing to take his nine-year-old brother and I thought this was well outside of what my husband and I had discussed that we wanted um what we thought we were capable of um, of taking on. And so, um, we had said always that we would love the idea of having brothers. Um, we wanted to keep the brothers 
uh, together. And um, and so, but we wanted children that were under five to kind of become parents for the first time. We didn't feel like we were equipped for older kids. And um, and so the, the placement unit says this is a nine-year-old child and um, and I'm sitting there and the workers waiting in silence for me to give an answer and I'm going through all these things in my head like Artie's gonna kill me <laughs> and but I felt in my heart that I couldn't I couldn't keep these brothers apart and I had the ability to take the nine-year-old I could do it you know I had space for him and um, and I could love him and I could help him and and you have no idea how long it's going to be for oh no they could be there a week or forever or forever uh yeah you've no idea and so i said yes and it was the best decision i ever made The nine-year-old brother arrived later that day, and Yvonne realizes the choice she had anguished over just hours before was the right one. So I was carrying a bassinet that I had picked up at a yard sale, and I didn't need. I had gotten two of them, so I was carrying it um, down out front of our house and with a free sign on it. And I knew I had to like get back up to the house because the toddler was in there. So I, so I was rushing, and I turned my head and I see um, a older woman walking down the sidewalk with a little boy in an oversized black hoodie, um, with the hood up and his hands in his pockets. And I thought, that's him. So. I waved and I ran upstairs to get back to the toddler and wait at the front door. And I had the storm, the glass storm door um, was shut and the door was open and the toddler was standing at the door looking out and his brother starts walking up the stairs with the social worker. And he started slamming his hands on the glass door. The little one. The little one and squealing. It was like this was what he needed to feel safe. He felt so comforted by the sight of his brother. And... You know, I open the door and he's squealing and he's hugging and the brothers are hugging on each other. And um, so, you know, we sit down on the at the table and I have to sign some paperwork and, um, you know, try to ask a few questions about the circumstances or how long um, the boys might be with us uh, and the workers don't really know. Uh, they don't have, you know, a crystal ball. They can't really tell you. So it's he's he's arrived in the morning and hugged his his toddler brother. Mm-hmm. His toddler brother's gone crazy for him. <laughs> and it's the first night you're you're tucking him in. I assume the the room is dim. It's the end of a long day. Um, what do you say to him? I told him that I loved him. And it felt awkward, um, but I, I believed in that moment, and I believe now that that a child should never go to bed without having somebody tuck them in and tell them that they love them. So I I told him I loved him and I kissed him on his forehead and he had these big blue eyes and he would just look at me for answers and I know he asked me 
Will I be here forever? And I didn't know what to tell him. I didn't know. I have no idea, you know. Um, but I knew that if if he was ever going to trust me, I had to be honest with him about what I didn't know um, and about the fact that this was a scary situation, you know. So I... Um, and And he's asking, will I be here forever? And part of you... Is, is hoping that, right? Oh my God, I'm praying it. I'm praying that that these boys could be mine. You know? Um, I didn't... I didn't know anything about their home life, about their parents. So it was easy at that point to wish... Um, that they could be mine because I, I, I didn't know, I didn't know their parents. I didn't know their family. And so, so yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking, did God bring us all together in this moment? Um, is the puzzle fitting together right here? In 24 hours, Yvonne and Artie had gone from no children to two. Ready or not, they had become parents overnight. They scrambled to baby-proof the house and find daycare. They also needed to take the boys on an immediate round of doctor visits. All the while, social workers were stopping by. Some 437,000 U.S. children are in foster care. They're usually placed there because of abuse or, more often, neglect. In the case of the two brothers, Yvonne knew few details, only that the children were taken away from their parents because of neglect. The goal is reunification. Give the kids a safe home while their parents work on a plan to improve their lives. Then bring everyone back together. Despite this, about a quarter of foster children ultimately have their case plans changed to adoption. Yvonne and Artie knew this and went into the process hoping they might get to adopt. This is controversial in some circles since the main goal of foster care is to reunify children with their natural parents. For Yvonne and Artie, even as they are starting to feel like a real family with the boys, they are mindful of the friction. Their hopes, the system's goals, what was best for the boys, what was best for the parents. Could it all line up? From their first day with the nine-year-old, Yvonne and Artie could see the toll it can take on the children caught in between. He was trying to be so perfect. He was on his best behavior that whole day, doing everything that he thought he uh, a good little boy would do. He, We were at the ball game. We took him to an Orioles game that first day. And I said, do you want to get um, a slice of pizza for dinner? And he said he wanted vegetables for dinner <laughs> <laughs> with water. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> we got him pizza. <laughs> but here he was, you know, this vulnerable little thing, trying to be so grown up and so good, you know, because it's not hard to understand that a child could create a whole um, narrative around why this is their fault, you know, why he caused... Um, the removal from his parents' house and um, at bedtime when he's finally letting his guard down just a little bit with me, he says um, that his cousins went into foster care and they never came home. So that's why he thought that he was going to be with us forever. And I just knew how deeply it hurt him to think that. 
and I wanted to make it better, but I had no idea about anything. So, um, I told him, I brought him to the window and we were looking out the window and I said, you know, there's the moon and there's the stars and your parents are across this very city and they can look up and see it too. I mean, it's not an original idea, but it was comforting to me when I was a little girl and I thought that it could comfort him too, to to know that he wasn't so far away from his parents that they couldn't also be looking at the very same thing that he was. Yvonne, tell us what it was like the first time you met um, their parents or, or the dad. So when we first started the visits at the East Baltimore Department of Social Services office, the worker had us um, go around to a back door to drop the boys off so that there wasn't any direct interaction with the parents. I don't know if that was kind of common protocol or if that's what the worker thought was best, at least at the introduction of this process, this case. But eventually, soon, um, she had us all come into the lobby. And so... And you didn't expect going into the process you would ever even see the mm -mm. parents, right? You thought that was all going to be done through the social worker. Yeah. But quite quickly into the process you're confronted or you see see the parents. Yes, and it was really startling. It was scary. I didn't know what how they would receive us. I I, I just yeah, I was scared. I was nervous. I was curious. I wanted to I wanted to meet them. So on this day, I'm picking the boys up from the DSS office and the our older foster son has these armful of toys that um, the grandfather had brought for him and he's trying to to carry them out and and his father's standing there and he says that he'll help us carry them out to the car and he doesn't look at me and he doesn't say anything to me and you're not introduced not introduced no (laughs) no it's all like it's all confusing and messy and there's not rules and we just all found ourselves standing in the lobby together um, with the nine-year-old and I knew that it was important um, for for him to see that I could get along with his dad because I knew how much he loved his dad. His dad was his hero, like so many little boys look to their fathers. And so we walk out to the um, this kind of summer day in the parking lot, and I reached over and I put my arm on their dad's arm, and I said, I am so sorry this is happening to your family. And he turned and he looked at me with the same blue eyes that his son has. And I know it meant something to him. Did he say anything? He said, thank you. You know, and and he meant it. And, and I wanted him to know that I was that I was sorry they were going through this, you know, like it's so unnatural. And I knew um, that the nine-year-old, his dad was and is larger than life for him. You know, he he would tell so many stories about um, the adventures that he would have with his dad, um, specifically fishing. The two of them always bonded over fishing. He idealized his dad. Um, and I knew that it would be easier for him if he saw his parents and his foster parents getting along. And so um, it was the, um, the, the first day of, of a new relationship, which grew um, in really beautiful ways over time. Um, the same with their mother, of course. 
once we all met each other, we could work toward a common goal, which was loving and parenting the boys. But it was tough, especially as the months went on and the boys were still living with Yvonne and Artie. They took care of them as if they were their own children. You know, it was like on, on one hand wishing that I could be the parent, but recognizing um, that the parents were irreplaceable. They were the boys' parents. We did a lot to foster the boys' relationship with the parents while they were with us. So it was um, taking uh, our older foster son Christmas shopping for his parents. And, you know, it was seeing the boys grow over time. I'm a Man, you're just a pro at that. That was demonstrating the ways that we were co-parenting them. So the impact that we were both having, I remember we picked um, the toddler up one weekend from a visitation with his dad. He had spent the whole weekend there. And he came home, and we were um, we were driving actually to the car wash, and um, and he was in the back seat. And I knew his dad had told him that his shoes were not only dirty, they were muddy. <laughs> so he's in the back seat, and he was saying dirt, or he was saying mud, not dirt. <laughs> and he just kept kind of reciting it. He was saying mud, mud, and I just I was watching him kind of come alive and learn. And it was because both of us were there. What if they did it together, Yvonne wondered. Two sets of parents working toward one goal. Still lingering, though, was her initial prayer. Her mind flickered. There she was, walking the younger brother into kindergarten, sending the older brother off to college. I knew that that would never come to be because as the case was progressing, I began to really understand how hard their parents were um, wanting them back and, and that they were fighting to get their life together enough um, that they could get their sons back. So I knew that this was just a fantasy, you know, that I could step in to this role, but only for now, when they needed me. And did you feel sad, angry about that? What are you going through personally when you, on the one hand, are, are doing everything a mother would do, but on the other hand feel like you're really not their mother it, it was like every different day you could feel a different way about it you know deeply sad that I could I could be a mother um in every way except for um in the way that it really mattered what happened about four months in when you had to had a chance to to be with some friends away one day? What was the conversation that that a good friend had with you at that point when you're maybe a little bit at a breaking point or or not sure what's going to happen? You've had these boys for four months. You've fallen in love with them. Every six weeks there's a hearing and they may go home or they may stay. You could have them for another week or another year you don't know yeah so I was sitting on um, the back deck of this cabin in West Virginia it's just really beautiful you could feel the warmth of the sunlight on your skin and you look out to just like rolling hills with 
um, these different shades of green. It was just a, a really kind of beautiful setting, the kind that lets you do soul searching, you know. So I'm sitting with my girlfriend who um, was a former foster child herself who's gone on to be a remarkable person and she's challenging me like she always does and um and says like why are you doing this like you want to be a mother and these boys have a mother they have a father um so if they go home that is what should have happened like if they go home then the systems worked like it should so what are you doing like what are you trying to accomplish um and it uh, just hit me to the core um and I would think to myself why am I doing this like why am I doing this like how much of it she said if you want something different then you have to do something different you want to be a mother that's not the point of foster care and again it was this idea of understanding something intellectually versus emotionally and so I had to really come to terms with um why I was doing this and I did and I felt like all my life every day I say to God I want you to use me I want you to use my life I want to um I want to have a purpose and I want to do good and I want um, I want things to be better because of of me being here. And so um, I realized that this was that prayer in motion. I knew that if these parents had an opportunity to breathe and take a step back and collect themselves that this was their opportunity to become whole As their younger foster son went from toddling to walking to running, it occurred to Yvonne and Artie that he had been with them for most of his life. Did he think they were his real parents? Logic might suggest that. Nature says something else. We would come to the meeting spot where we would do, um, the older son was having weekend visits with his dad and the toddler would just leap out of my arms to run to his dad. I mean, that bond was, it, it was undeniable. I mean, wh- and what, what was it based on, you know? Like, it was innate inside of him. He longed for his dad, and his dad longed for him. So you start wondering... Is what they're getting, being safe with us, better than if they were with the parents? Yeah. What's I, the, the question at the core yes. for you and really for all of the foster care system in this country for child welfare people is balancing yes. that dilemma. Yes. that And, and I got it. <laughs> I got it. Is it worse? For kids to stay in a situation that could be neglectful, or for them, is it worse to be apart from their parents? 
which does less harm. So Yvonne, the kids have been with you for months. At this point, you have your own little traditions. They are having visits with their parents. What did the boys call you? So our older son called us by our first names, and the toddler always kept coming back to mama and dada and then eventually daddy and mommy. And I just wanted to, I wanted it to be true. Um, I didn't know what he should call us. So I didn't say anything. I didn't call myself anything. My husband didn't call himself anything, but I let it go on. You know, I didn't correct him and and I struggled with it so much. It felt like a betrayal of um, his mother to let him call me mama. But it also felt so good and natural. And um, and so he was having, uh, the toddler was having unsupervised visits with his mother at this period. And so we went to the meeting spot. And she comes to the back seat of my car to pull him out of the car seat and he is fussing and you know crying because uh, change is hard for a toddler so he you know kind of wanted to stay put and she was saying she says I know you love Mama Yvonne and her words Oh, my God, they meant everything to me. It felt so generous and kind. And it. I called my mother and I said, you know, this is what she said. And my mom said, well, then stop fighting it. Shortly after this visit, within like a, a day or even could have been later that same day we were standing out in our backyard and I was digging through my purse to get some keys out to get into the house and the toddler was climbing over on something and he says mama I looked at him and I pointed to myself and I said no Vani and he says no ma ma (laughs) And I scooped him up, and I kissed his head, and I kissed his cheeks, and I kissed his belly, and I held him. And I just remember loving that moment, and I knew that I was his mama, even if it was only temporary. Who's on the video? Who's this? Mama. Not much longer after that moment, you get the phone call you've been dreading. Yeah. You never know um, when it's going to come. The hearings were every six weeks, approximately. And so this is, um, I guess, uh, close to two years. And I was, see the social worker calling. I knew there was a hearing that day, of course. And she says that the judge has decided that it was time for our older foster son to go home. And I said, will he be safe? And she said, yes. And now the case is going to be transferred to a family preservation worker who would be monitoring it just to make sure that everything would be good. And I just saw all of the things that I had wanted for him. He had just gotten this standardized testing back from the school. um, And I was so proud of him. He was, he was outperforming, you know, kids in his school and based on state averages. And I, I wanted to see that through, you know, I wanted, I wanted to help him with his homework. I wanted... I wanted to be his mother, 
and um, and I could never be. The boy's father gave them the day to say goodbye. Parent-teacher night afforded one last trip to school, and he and Artie squeezed in one last game of catch. And then we rushed to go to this hibachi grill, which was his favorite. And wouldn't you know, he came downstairs wearing an Oxford shirt, and he had slicked his hair over to the side to get himself all dressed up. Oh God, he was so sweet. And um, and we went to dinner together and and uh, we had a great time. And and the, the, the toddler was staying with us. And so um, when you we had to pack up his things. We had to pack up his things and um, and he was having a hard night. He was he was crying, too. And he um, I tried to put the happiest spin on it. You know, I said this whole situation, um, I said it wasn't so bad, you know, it was scary and it was confusing, but, um, but in the end you got a a whole nother family out of it. And I said, we'll be, um, we'll be with you, you know, forever. And his, his dad had asked us to be the boy's godparents so I said, we'll have to stop calling ourselves your foster parents, and now I can start calling us your godparents. He leaves. You drop him off. You try to pull yourself together to drive to the Baltimore Sun where you're a reporter, and your phone starts ringing. Tell me about that. Could we take another placement? <laughs> In Maryland and across the country, there is a constant need for foster parents, especially with the impact of the opioid epidemic. The calls come all the time. I'm looking for a placement for a three-month-old baby girl. They're frequent, and they come at all hours. He has space for a three-year-old. And as soon as we had another approved bed for a foster child available, the calls started coming again. Cute little kid, very smart. You can assist us, please call me back. Thank you. What were some of the cases they they said you asked you to take? I couldn't let the worker tell me because I knew I had to say no and I didn't want to know what I was saying no to. It felt it feels so terrible to be presented with information about a child who who needs you and to say no but I couldn't we couldn't say yes we were so god we were we were mourning the loss of of him and and I needed some I needed some time and so I couldn't I couldn't know Mm-hmm. what these calls were for. And the toddler's still home with you. Yeah, he was still with us. But you know he's likely to go at that point. Yeah. He's likely to go back and with his dad. What happens when you get the phone call in late September at night when you're with your friends? So... My girlfriend was celebrating her birthday at the beautiful Bluebird cocktail room in Hamden. It was just an ordinary night. It was like about 8.30, and I had my phone sitting on the table because um, the boy's mother was calling um, to say goodnight to the toddler. But I had missed her call. And when I tried to call her back, it just rang and rang and rang. It was from a number I didn't know. So I didn't want to miss the next call. I wanted to be able to tell her that that I was out and I was sorry she would have to call the next night to get him. And um, and so the phone lit up with a number I didn't know, and I answered it, and it wasn't their mother. It was an adoption worker calling from DSS. 
and I ran to the corner of the room and I turned my phone up and I pressed it really hard up against so I could hear I plugged my fingers in my ear and she says there's a little girl two days old at the hospital her mother has signed her rights away would we be willing to take the placement and I said yes and I felt like I was outside of my body So you pick up the phone in a twist of fate, yes. trying to make sure you're connecting the toddler to his mom, and you end up getting this phone call. What happens? You run back to the table <laughs> with your friends. You're crying. Yes. Yes, and um, and everything gets set into motion. <laughs> Somebody's asking me for my wallet to go clear off my bill, you know. Um, somebody else is making plans to take me to Target because um, I don't have anything for a newborn. I don't have any items for a little girl. And, um, and I'm desperately trying to call my husband who's not picking up the phone. And I call my mother and I say, there's a baby. And she could be my daughter. So you bustle home with all this baby stuff from Target and up the steps of your row home and the toddler, your foster care son, wakes up. Yeah, with all of kind of the ex excitement, my two girlfriends and the dogs and my husband and we're carrying these bags into the house and and he gets kind of woken up and he's fussy and and um and I picked him up and we were standing in the foyer and I held him and I looked at him and I said you're the only baby I want he was the only baby I wanted I wanted him so much to be my son because this other baby, I didn't know, you know. I didn't know her, but I knew him, and I loved him, and he was perfect. And you, he'd been with you for half of his life at that point. He had been with us for about two years, and he had come to us at 15 months, so he had been with us for... You know, near enough to two-thirds of his life, I guess. So you're in the foyer of your home in between these two worlds, these two chapters of your life, the toddler that's probably going home and and this baby girl who, who is coming. Time's going by. What are you doing? Are you just... We were... We, so my husband was trying to get some sleep because... He had to go into work, and um, and so it was like, my gosh, I guess it was like 10, 1030 or something, and so my girlfriends were sitting on the front porch with me. We were just waiting for this worker to get there. She says, like, the baby's being discharged, and she'll be on her way, and then it just was taking hours, and so eventually they had to go home because they had to go to work the next day, too, and so they left at maybe like 1130 or something. So um, I made my husband get up and come downstairs. And, of course, he just fell asleep on the sofa instead of the bed. So he was sleeping. And I was sitting there and I was watching TV. And I just was walking up to the window. I mean, I think like every five minutes I was looking out the window to see if this worker was coming. And um, about 1.30, I see a car is double parked outside of my house. And I shouted to my husband, She's here. And I ran down the stairs. I didn't put my shoes on. I didn't put a coat on. I stood on the sidewalk. And the worker handed me this baby girl with a diaper and a little onesie and this thin white blanket wrapped around her. And she said, hello, mama. The worker said, hello, mama. And I looked at the baby and I thought, are you real? Is this really happening? Could this really be happening? 
could you be my daughter? You know, I waited so long for you. Are you finally here? Next time on The Wait. Yvonne and Artie say goodbye to their three-year-old foster son and welcome a baby who could be their daughter. After a decade of dreaming, they're closer than ever to becoming parents. The Wait is a podcast of the Baltimore Sun. Yvonne's story is also being told through words, pictures, and video on our website. Go to baltimoresun.com slash the wait. The podcast producers are Quinn Kelly and Steve Early. For Yvonne Wanger, I'm Diana Suck. Bye-bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>